1: Hey, this is Jonathan Dio, author of Mindful Money. If you want to learn how to connect with world-class people, you should be listening to the Build Your Network podcast with my good friend, Travis Chapel.
0: Welcome to the show. I'm Travis Chapel, and I chat with some of the world's top business influencers, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in order to crack the code of networking. I believe that who you know is more important than what you know, and that your relationships ultimately determine the person that you become. So if you want to learn the new way of connecting, if you want to fill your network with quality people and skyrocket your results, then you're in the right place because this is the Build Your Network podcast. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Build Your Network. Today, I'm sitting down with Jonathan deyo Jonathan is the best-selling author of Mindful Money, Simple Practices for Reaching Your Financial Goals and Increasing Your Happiness Dividend. He writes and speaks about the intersection between love and money and has been investing for 40 years and been a financial advisor for 25 He started his firm back in 2001, and he's a big believer in financial literacy training and a big advocate for the fiduciary standard. Guys, it's going to be such an amazing conversation. Finances and happiness, two of the most important things in life, uh, in my opinion. So it's going to be some really great stuff that we get into with Jonathan. But first, really quickly, if you're a seven-figure entrepreneur and you want a podcast for yourself, you think that it could help you with your brand, maybe get you more book deals, more speaking gigs, or build an audience or bring more clients into your business, whatever it is, but you're just not sure exactly how to get it done, then have me and my team do it for you. Head over to travischappell.com slash podcast There's a quick application there. We'll jump on a call to see if it's a good fit for us to build out a show for you so that you don't actually have to take the time to do it, but you can still reap the benefits of having one. That's travischappell.com slash podcast Jonathan, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Travis, thanks for having me. I'm glad you invited me on. Yes, sir. I, I appreciate the work that you do in the world. And I'm excited to share some light on to some of that stuff that you're working on with the audience today. But first, before we do that, let's go ahead and rewind the clock a little bit and build some context for those listening. Talk to me about what it was like growing up for you. Let's put an age on it and say 11-year-old Jonathan Dio. What was life like for 11-year-old Jonathan Dio? family, you know, stuff first, and then maybe some school, academic, sports, what were you up to?
1: At 11? Well, that's interesting. That's the first time I've been asked this question. You know, uh, I guess the three categories... The family. I had a fantastic, loving family. Both parents were at home between the age of three and sixteen. And this is—we didn't really have an income, so wow. we, we struggled a lot financially. But you know, I lived in Rapid City, South Dakota. You know, I was a kid, so I played up on the hill, and I you know played soccer. And I didn't really know how bad we had it. Yeah, I didn't right. know except for the jar of peanut butter that we had. That was a, it Was a big five-gallon you know, silver canister that came from the federal government. So, but I, you know, when you're a kid, you don't know that kind of stuff, but my family loved me. They drove me to study hard. I studied hard. I pretty much have done everything in my life. Very, you know, I've worked hard. I played soccer hard. I was a Boy Scout with all my, you know, all my energy. I played basketball really hard. I was involved in pretty much every sport, but football growing up and ended up Going to college to start with finance, got bored and started studying comparative religion instead. So that, Hmm. you know, there's a little bit of a combination of weirdness there.
0: Why did you want to study finance in college? It's always been an interest
1: of of mine, actually. And so today, my kids are being raised in a culture that's vastly different than the culture I was raised in. Hmm. You know, social media is a huge part of that. Just the fact that we can turn on whatever the social media is, and you see all these influencers and you see people in you know, with planes and cars and and you don't really understand that those are fake. So that's a problem. But I knew we didn't have anything. My kids are blessed with many, many, many things. I don't know if they have the same drive that comes out of that.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting insight for sure. My audience knows this by now, but I always ask uh, some selfish parenting questions when I talk with another parent because uh, my son's 16 months and our daughter is going to be here in November. So I'm always curious about people's insights into that. Is there anything that you do with your kids specifically to try to instill a little bit of that drive that maybe they don't have naturally because they just are simply growing up in a different time?
1: I mean, honestly, we make it work. My son is 15 years old. He has had a a job in the community for, since he was 12. He's been doing his own laundry since he was 10. They each cook a meal every once a week. They they have a ton of chores. None of their friends have chores. You know, the, the big complaint is oh my God, dad, you know, my friends don't have to do this. Why do I have to do this? I'm like, well, you know, when you go to school, you'll be able to teach your, be able to teach your friends how to do laundry when you're in college. So <laughs> yeah, for real. we make them work, basically. They've got stuff they have to do. Both yeah. kids, my son is 15. My daughter is is 12. And it's funny, I just shared this with my with my mom today. My wife, Kate, sent me a picture of my daughter, who's 12, again, fixing the plumbing in our master bathroom. So we had a clog. <laughs> And I said, hey, just, you know, Google it, figure it out. And so she went in, Googled it, figured it out, took the plumbing apart, snaked the drain, put it all back together. Works like a charm. So my wow. 12-year-old did the plumbing in my in the master bath in our house. Three weeks ago, my son did something similar similar to that same thing in their bathroom. So we just make them do it, man. Yeah. That's what we going to do. Make them do it. Don't let them off.
0: Yeah. It's definitely that added responsibility where like you have things that are depending on you taking care of them in order for things to work properly. And if you don't take care of them, then that's on you and it's your responsibility to figure it out type of a thing.
1: That's right. And then they rise to the occasion. They're smart, you know. but we've been doing that since they were little. So you're, you've got plenty of time just to make sure that they're you know learning these things from the get-go.
0: Yes, sir. Okay, cool. So I, that's a little bit of an aside there uh, that I always like to take if I have the opportunity to. So kind of getting back into your story specifically, you mentioned that you had an interest in finance, but you ended up going to, you said comparative religion. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So that's a bizarre story. So I started, I started trading and this is not with a with a lot of money, but you know, I had a summer job. I took five hundred dollars, and I bought a stock when I was nine years old. And so I found Value Line Research. And this is, you know, I'm a nine or ten year old, so this pretty much qualifies me for a nerd right off the bat. <laughs> and I was like, I, I was, I was the scrawniest kid you could think of, but I love Value Line Research. So I started studying businesses when I was really, really young, and so it just made sense. You know, I loved I loved my high school economics class. That was my favorite class. Economics was so cool to me. I loved it. Mm. You know, how does all this stuff work in the economy? Why do people make these decisions? What are we measuring here? It was very, very interesting. To me. And so I went to college and I was like, Oh, great. You know, I'll, I'll study this finance thing. And I was just bored out of my mind. It was just so dry. And I was just, this is horrible. Mm. So I, you know, tried some English lit that was not for me. And I found a professor, James Allard. He was a professor of the classics, Greek philosophers. And I just, this guy was, he was funny. He was wicked smart. uh, And I just, I loved being in his his class and and talking to him. And then it was another gentleman, Marvin Shaw, who took me under his wing and he introduced me to comparative religion specifically. Hmm. And he said, hey, Jonathan, you, you know, The papers you write are, you know, he didn't say very insightful. He said something nice. And he said, you should probably, you know, maybe think about considering continuing this. So I went to grad school and I ended up studying in grad school, Tibetan phenomenology. What that really is, is it's the Tibetan philosophy of how we experience the world. It's a lot of, if you're familiar with it, Buddhist literature at all, yeah. it's a lot of Abhidharma. It's a lot of uh, what would be sort of the canon, the Buddhist canon translated through Tibetan philosophy. And it was just, you know, what's the world look like to us? What, how do we make the decisions? So it's kind of the same stuff as economics, actually, but it was about how to get enlightened, what's important, what matters to humans. It was really, you know, it actually feeds into the career path later on. Sure. How did it feed into your career path? Specifically. I'd love to say it did immediately and it all made sense, but it you know, it doesn't. I started working with clients because investing was always an interest of mine. And I worked on Wall Street firms. And what Wall Street firms teach you how to do is sell crap, right? Here's a product. <laughs> yeah. um, and so I was really I, I was really quite good at communicating with people, but I hated selling product. Hmm. Um, and I had, a, again, another, another manager, my name was Ernie Guzman. And I almost quit three or four times. And he was my manager. And he said, you know, Jonathan, I don't do this the way they want me to do this. And I was like, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, I do this for this reason, for that reason, for this reason, if there's something that they ask me to do that I, that I don't think is right, I don't do it. If you can carve out a niche for yourself in this space, and you can attract clients with that niche, you can do whatever you want. Like you can there's people that trade options. They have a business. There's people that are stock slingers. They have a business. There's people that sell very expensive, loaded, you know, REITs. Uh, they have a business. If you want to do something that's planning oriented, you want to do something that's low cost for clients. You want to do something that is, has more to do with how you see the world. This is where mindfulness starts to seep in a little bit. Then you can. It's just not going to be the obvious path. And uh, it took me you know, six or seven years with Wall Street firms to figure out that wasn't for me. Took me many years as an independent advisor, running my own office, running my own firm to figure out that, you know what? I could actually integrate mindfulness into this. And so literally this year, two weeks ago we dropped the name of the company which was do wealth management and now the name of the company is mindful money and it's really wow. all about that issue of mindfulness applied to you know the stresses of financial markets how do you how do you
0: manage around financial yeah. markets I absolutely love that philosophy there. And I think that typically you don't find a lot of people that are preaching both of those, if that makes sense. Usually the people who are preaching the philosophical side of, you know, be happy with nothing in life type things are not the people that are also telling you, what to do with your finances and how to make a lot of money and how to live a wealthy lifestyle, right? Like it's very much almost contradictory in a sense. And then the people who are always preaching finances, finances, finances aren't going on the opposite side of that either and talking about how, look, money doesn't lead to happiness. Money just amplifies the current state that you're in. So if you don't learn how to be happy by yourself, then you're not gonna be happy when you get the money. That Like you'll have a little bit more pleasure, maybe a little bit more enjoyable things possibly or experiences but um, it's not in and of itself the source of that happiness. So having you come in and, and talk about both of those things in terms of how it can best affect people's lives in a financial way and in a fulfillment way, I think is amazing. And I think that's something that's very much needed. What are a few maybe misconceptions surrounding those two things coinciding together that maybe most people come to the table with?
1: Misconceptions about those two things coinciding together. That's a that's a phrase. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so so the, the first thing, that, you know, when people say, okay, Jonathan, you're a, you're a financial advisor. Yeah. And you're a Buddhist. Yeah. And, and your, your advice is that I eat well, exercise regularly and meditate. Yes. They glaze over. Like, How does one have anything to do with the other?
0: That's kind of where the question's coming from. That's what I mean by the question is like, they just don't seem to intertwine very often. So the fact that you're intertwining them on purpose for the sake of the business, that that's kind of where that question's coming from.
1: Yeah, how do you resolve the disconnect? Yep. It's really interesting. Here's kind of what I notice. I've worked with people in the early days of my career. This is late 1990s. I did a budgeting class at a halfway house in San Francisco. So I had people that I was teaching how to manage their money who were shot callers in prison and who, you know, were murderers. And there's a group of people that benefit from very, 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 very basic financial planning. What I noticed was later in my career, I'm working with, you know, very, very wealthy people. They have a lot of very similar misunderstandings about how money works. And what comes out of this is nobody really knows If we just admit for a second that we don't know what the future holds ever, and yet we do what we can to take care of that future that's Mm. unknown, that's unmanageable, that's unpredictable, that is uncontrollable. And I have one of my Buddhist teachers used to say, you know, you look at the dishes and you take care of the dishes and you wash the dishes, and you know at some point the dishes will break, but you still take care of the dishes and wash the dishes and clean the dishes and take care of them, but you know they're going to break. You go, oh, this... Happens and that's okay. You bring that into the world of of finance, you know. I know there's some very basic things I have to know what my trade offs are, and my trade offs are going to be different than your trade offs. There's things that I'm going to prefer to spend money on, there's things that you're going to prefer to spend money on. If I can say I'm going to spend on, if I can first recognize what I want to spend money on, and then I can allow myself to trade off those other things without feeling like I'm not successful without feeling like I'm missing something or being stupid about something. If I can say, no, 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 I actually, for me, this is what's important. This is where I'm gonna focus my financial resources, my time resources, and do that, then I getting the benefit of that is the dividend from that is I have a happy life, right? And so that's true. If you have a lot of money, if you have a little money, you can't do everything. But if you focus on you start with your own values, the things that are important to you, and you focus on those things, you can actually have those things. Right now, in our world, we're just bombarded with everything else. All yeah. the time. spend yeah. on this, spend on this, spend on this, spend on this, and then the last seven months, it's been you know I don't know if, I don't know how much you pay attention to markets, but we had the fastest market decline in history, thirty-four days long, followed by the fastest increase, fifty days long in history. Like yeah. boom, boom, it was end of the world. And the world was renewed all within three months. It was just mind blowing. So what do you do with that? Well, whatever you had the plan in place that told you what you're supposed to do, I'm supposed to save this much because these are the outcomes I want. Just keep doing that. Don't second guess everything all the time, right? Mm. Follow the plan. Have a plan. Follow your plan. Don't worry about markets. Don't worry about all these things. They kind of take care of themselves. And it takes a whole nother set of education to begin to trust that. That's really the heart of wisdom when it comes to finances is you have to kind of trust that.
0: Yeah, which I assume has to be beneficial when you're practicing the mindfulness part when the markets are taking a dive and you are looking at your account depreciating significantly in front of your eyes and trying not to freak out and take all your money out of the market, which would obviously have been the worst possible thing that you could have done when the economy was going through that downturn. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need hire, you need Indeed. What are some ways, maybe practical ways, maybe spiritual meditations or whatever, that we can learn to be more steadfast during times when it feels like you're gonna lose everything.
1: I did a presentation today, earlier today, and the presentation, I had a question. And my question was first, what did you guys do? And there were 70 people on this call. What did you folks do in February, March of this year? And 65% got more conservative So they sold their equities at a bottom and 20% did nothing. And like whatever the rest is, 15% or so purchased equities when the market was really, really low. And so it's very interesting. Every single time I do that, that is the outcome. The answer to the question is whatever the thing our emotions told us to do, that is the thing that we did. Hmm. So there's two problems with that. The first problem is, and after the fact, I can tell them, hey, do you notice how now that's a mistake? And they'll go, no. No that wasn't a mistake. That was the right thing for me to do. Because then we have all this layering of cognitive bias on top. But I could not have made a mistake here. I could not be wrong about this. But it's it's really intriguing. I think there's sort of two things that we can do. And the first is we have to develop our faith in the future. And what I mean by that is, I don't know how old you are. I am 49 years old. When I purchased my first shirt, my first professional shirt, it was probably $20. Today, I cannot buy a shirt for less than a hundred dollars, you know, a, a nice dress shirt, less than like a mm-hmm. hundred bucks. And I buy like custom shirts that fit me that, you know, cause I'm six foot five and, you know, I've, I've got a chest and arms that are really long. So it's, I have a weird fit. So I buy custom shirts and they're usually about 150 to $200. Those shirts back in the day were 20 bucks. So mm-hmm. there's a real issue when you think about long-term planning and that real issue is the cost of goods is always increasing. Yeah. At the same time, there's a false issue. And that false issue is that A, market volatility matters to the long-term investing, B, that we can predict it. The first thing that we have to do is recognize that markets and economies generally improve over time. Yes, they have really bad periods, mm-hmm. but over long periods of time, they just get better and better and better and better and better. Mm. At the same time, that drives this whole thing called goods getting more and more and more expensive. That is the real risk. So we have to recognize what the real risk is. That requires education. Once we know, once we know what the real risk is, then we have to actually focus on that as the thing we're defending against. And that's, that's why planning should disregard zigs and zags in markets. Planning should include in some kind of inflationary number built in hedge, if you're thinking about 20 years, there isn't a period of negative 20-year returns. It doesn't exist. Why are we concerned with that when we're thinking about retirement income? We shouldn't be, but we conflate. We conflate volatility with risk. And that's the problem is we're, we're miseducated around what real risk is. Get the education and then understand what we're actually defending against. And then we can actually you know develop that mindfulness or resilience around the stuff that we can't predict or control anyways in the current environment.
0: Yeah, I was reading Tony Robbins' book, Unshakable, And one of the things that completely shocked me was, I forget the exact numbers. And so if you're listening to this, you might need to just go Google it or something or read the book. I highly recommend everybody read that book. It's a great one to start with if you don't know anything about any financial world at all. He was talking about how over the course of like 30 years, If you missed like the top, I don't know, 30 or 40 trading days, like the most gains in in a single day, like the top 30, 40 days in that 30 year time span, the amount of interest that you earned on the balance that was in that account was significantly lower. And like I said, I can't remember the actual stats, but it was surprising enough to me to like actually like, you know, make me drop my jaw as I was reading the book, you know what I mean? And that right there was enough for me to be able to justify just saying like, you know what, I just got to trust that it's going to bounce back. Because if you take your money out and you miss three or four of those top trading days, you can significantly affect your final balance uh, when you go to pull that money out. Is that right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the number is like 60. You boot like 65 to 70% of the performance if you give up. 30 of the best trading days. It's yeah, it is it's mind blowing. And if you give Insane. up if you give up 50 or 60, your performance that would have been an average of eight or nine long term percent is actually negative. So wow. all of your returns come in very few days and there is no way. And that's, you know, I always, I use this phrase, they don't ring a bell at the top. They don't ring a bell at the bottom. Right. There is no indicator. There's all these kind of people that are emoting all over the place. I don't, I feel as if, I think that maybe this will happen. Maybe that'll right. happen. Sure. No one has a clue. No one has a clue. Ignore that.
0: <laughs> it's all conjecture. Yeah. it's funny. Cause I, when, I, when I realized that too, I was reading through principles, uh, Ray Dalio's book. And and, for those of you listening who may not know, he is largest hedge fund in existence. Is that right, uh, Jonathan? Yeah, largest hedge fund uh, in existence is Ray's fund. And um, even he admits to like all the mistakes that he's made in his career and how long he's poured his life and into figuring out these predictive algorithms and uh, these quants and all these things that I'm just like, if this guy is at the end of his career in terms of managing his fund, and he's going like, look guys, I still don't know what's up than me like sitting in my boxers on my couch, like looking at like my e-trade account. I don't probably don't have much of a shot of predicting the market. So <laughs> may as well just listen to that conventional wisdom there on that one for sure.
1: Yeah, and read Warren Buffett's annual report. I mean, he's literally been doing writing this to everyday investors for 30, 40 years. It's the same story over and over and over and over again. If people want to do this themselves, then they should just Buy a broadly diversified index of you know companies around the world. Maybe pair that with some fixed income and just leave it. And that's mm-hmm. Warren Buffett's advice. That was John Bogle's advice. That's the best advice. If you're going to do it yourself, that's the best thing you can do. Trading. It's amazing to me. I don't know if you if you've seen these statistics, but in the last two three months, you know during COVID, TD Ameritrade, Schwab, uh, that new one, the new app, Robinhood, they've had more. Small trading accounts opened and more people are trading than ever in because they're sitting at home doing nothing, thinking they can yeah. make you know money. And so they're we've seen this movie before. Like this is not new behavior. This is behavior that we've seen repeated over and over and over again. And mm-hmm. they're gonna be right for a little bit, and then they're gonna be marvelously wrong. All the gains they've gotten, they're gonna lose. And this is this is routine, this is normal. So just mm-hmm. that the whole buy and hold and trust that the economies and markets actually work that owning you know the 500 largest or the 3000 biggest companies in the United States or you know the global all country world index or owning all of them actually is a is a tremendous way to go by the way it's easier you don't have to second guess it
0: yeah, right about it every day you don't have to trust yeah exactly day.
1: <laughs> You'll still worry when it goes down, but yeah, sure, sure. You worry, then you go. But what can I do? What do I know? Nothing. Yeah. Okay, let it go.
0: Next thing. Well, Jonathan, this has been a great conversation around finances and things like that. Maybe we'll have to come on for a part two and purely talk about that kind of stuff because I think it's so valuable, especially for I think even the younger folks that are listening, the eighteen to. You know, 25-year-olds right now who can really take advantage of that extra decade or two of compound interest if they would just get started sooner rather than waiting for some later date. But I do want to move the conversation, talking a little bit about networking before we jump into the final segment, the random round. But this is the question that I ask everybody that comes on the show. So I got to make sure that we get this one in. Jonathan, do you believe that who you know or what you know is more important? Which of the two of those is more important and why?
1: Who you know is more important. Every good thing that's happened in my career has come from an individual or a human that I've worked with or worked for, whether that's a client or a manager or all good thing or, or even a competitor, you yeah. know. I've learned more, I've been pushed to excel because of the people around me.
0: This is what I say all the time and this is why the show even exists is just to shed light on this uh, really important aspect and it's crazy how many people I talk to that are extremely successful, people like yourself who will say that a similar answer to that, to this question of like everything good in my life comes from people or relationships or a connection that I had here or there or an introduction or something like that. And I have so many people who have stories like that. And mean, I still come across people on a daily basis who don't ever spend any extra time on purpose getting to know people and building quality relationships. And it's just mind blowing to me. So I appreciate the answer there. Uh, let's go ahead and move into the last segment, something that's called the random round. Just a few quick random questions, quick random answers. You ready? Yep. What profession other than your own do you think that it would be fun to attempt?
1: I'd like to be a high school economics
0: teacher. If you could sit on a park bench with someone and chat for an hour, past or present, who would it be?
1: Well, wow. one of my professors in my graduate program, his name is Stephen Goodman, and he was genius about pop culture, genius about Buddhist phenomenology and Tibetan you know, work. He, and he died like you know a month ago, and I would love to spend an hour on a park
0: bench with him. How do you like to consume content? Books, audiobooks, blogs, podcasts, videos?
1: I just consume content. I just, so blogs are probably the way I wake up every morning and, and begin with blogs, but I oh, read cool. books, watch videos, uh, you know, tons and tons of content. What's one of your favorite
0: blogs? Abnormal Returns is one of my favorites. Cool. Give us a glimpse of your morning routine.
1: So every day I wake up a little bit after five o'clock, I meditate for 15 to 20 minutes. I work out and while I cool down, because I'm large, I read, I write, and then I spend some time with my kids and I shower and then I work.
0: What is your go-to
1: pump-up song? (laughs) (laughs) Either anything off of Mumford & Sons' Babel album, or my son just finished his first album this summer, so I'll listen to his stuff all day long.
0: All right, nice. What is something that you are just not very good at?
1: I'm not the funniest dude. Like the joke in my house is, <laughs> is you know, the jokes go by sarcasm. I just, I don't get it half the time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's a good answer. I like that one. As we get everything wrapped up here, what is one place online where our listeners can go to connect with you the most, Jonathan? And please tell us about your book really quick as well.
1: Uh, so you can go to mindful.money. That's the website for the new company. It's mindful.money. You can also connect with me directly on LinkedIn. That's probably the place I spend the most energy communicating with people. And the book is is called Mindful Money. And it is a simple practices for reaching your financial goals and increasing your happiness dividend. That's the blend of both finance and happiness. Um, and you can get that at a local bookstore. You can get it from Amazon. If you do get it, the reason it was written was because... It has exercises at the end of every single chapter. If you do the exercises, you end up with your own financial plan. And everybody needs a plan.
0: Yeah, love that. Uh, So make sure to go pick up a copy of Jonathan's book, Mindful Money. If you're listening to this right now, like we always say on the show, don't hesitate, don't wait. If you know you're going to get it, go get it right now so you don't forget about it. That's Mindful Money. I mean, you can find it at a bookstore near you or you can always look it up online. Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I had a fantastic time chatting with you. Yeah, me too. Thanks, Travis. Well, that's it for this episode. If you want to connect with me and other like-minded people who also listen to the show, then you're going to want to head over to Travischapel.com slash group to join my free Facebook group, The Lounge. I'll see you over there. And remember to leave every relationship better than you found it.